Well, welcome, everybody. Uh, if I don't know you, I'm Johnny. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to have you. You've been greeted many times, but what's one more? We are in a series entitled Practicing the Way, where we are looking at the fruit of the Spirit, but talking about them less as characters of our, or virtues of character or values, and talking about them more as practices that we participate in, in order to live in step with the Spirit. So what does it mean to, to live in step with the Spirit? Well, it means to practice love. And the result will be that it will cultivate in us love, but it is also a practice, not just some virtue or value. And today, we're moving further into the fruit, and we're going to talk about patience. And so just to like frame it up, I want to ask you a handful of questions just to start us off right. And fair warning, these questions are maybe abstract, maybe weird, but I think that they will begin to make sense as we walk through the sermon. So first one, what are the physics of patience? What are the physics of patience? You can think about that question as also being, what is patience? How would you define patience? How does patience work, and how is patience experienced? What are the physics of patience? Number two, how do you read a clock? This question you could break down to say, how do you think about time? How do you experience time? And maybe most importantly, is your conception of time the same as God's conception of time? And finally, how do you travel to space? How do you give and create space for God's self and others in your own life? How do you create space? Now, as you hear these questions, you might be wondering why I just asked you a bunch of space-time, back-to-the-future-style questions. And it's for a really simple reason. All this week, as I was paying attention and studying what patience is, the Bible talks about patience in a very fascinating way. And it uses really interesting language to describe patience. It uses language that actually sounds more like science language. The basic definition of physics is the study of matter in motion through time and space. And every time you look at the study of patience in Scripture, you get actually similar kinds of language. So if you come to the Hebrew word for language in passages like Exodus 34, verse 6, which is one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament where God describes himself, it says this. It says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, we translate it slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Hebrew word that is often, that is used there is not slow, though we translate it that way appropriately, it is long. That God becomes long for his people. That God becomes spacious for his people. The same kind of narrative continues into the Greek. And so when you look at like a famous passage about patience in the New Testament, let's look at 2 Peter 2 verse 39. You have a similar kind of dynamic. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
So right at the beginning, you have these two notions. You have, he is not slow as some count slowness. There's something about patience that has to deal with time. And then it comes to this moment of, but he is patient towards you. And the word is, he is long towards you. Which is where we get the phrase long-suffering. He is long-suffering. He becomes long. He becomes spacious. All throughout the scripture, the idea of patience carries two large ideas, that God moves deliberately slowly and that he becomes long. And so that led one theologian to describe patience this way. A German theologian, Karl Barth, described patience as God's patience is the purposeful concession of space and time to his people. Meaning that God's patience is a gift of space and time. It is a gift of God moving slowly on behalf of his people. It is a gift of God enduring much on behalf of his people. It is a a gift of God making space in himself on behalf of his people. And the same kind of language is used when God's people are described as patient. So you have in the Old Testament, Job 6, verse 11, Job is talking about patience, and he says, what is my strength that I should wait, and what is my end that I should be patient or become long, become spacious? And similarly, in Psalm 37, verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait, move slowly. So in both instances, you have Patience is about being long and about moving slowly. It is about giving space and time. God's patience is his gift of space and time to his people. And as we read the scriptures, what we find is that then our patience is a response to God's gift of space and time to his people. So God gives space and time, and we then practice giving space and time because of what we have received. Now, I I really like that definition, space and time. It's a little, like, abstract, but I really like it because I think it names two things that we are culturally very bad at. Giving or receiving space. Giving or receiving time. I think we culturally, especially as Americans, are very bad at giving specifically time or receiving time. And that leads to the second question, which is how do we read a clock? Now this might sound strange, but I think there's more than one way to approach a clock. Right, in the United States, the way that we read a clock is really influenced by, well, the Western world. In the 18th century, you have this like massive spread of clocks all over the world. Clocks become accurate, calendars become accurate, little cities start to sync up their clocks together so that one train would arrive in another place accurately. You have this ubiquitous spread of timekeeping abilities. And so we are able, from that moment on, to start to actually count and measure time. Count it, measure it. It's something that can be regulated, managed controlled all the way down to the second. And something changes. All of a sudden, time becomes a resource to be used, invested, or managed. 
I think the best example of this is if you have just a cell phone on you and you open up your calendar app, for me, what I see is a breakout of my day, right? An extensive breakout of the next 24 hours of my life. And then if I zoom out, I see a breakout, a day-by-day breakout of the week. And if I zoom out even further, I see a month-by-month, a week-by-week breakout of the month, then a month-by-month breakdown of the year. And then I can see a year-by-year breakdown of my entire life on my phone, This is a thing that never happened before. We could never do this. We could never regulate time in this way, control it, manage it, all the way from when you're dead to the very second that you're living. Some ways this is brilliant. Like some ways this is amazing. It means that it increases the levels of efficiency and productivity of our world. Hypothetically, trains and planes arrive on time unless you go to any airport ever where it's just it's chaos. I hate airports. It's just a, just, a, just a story for later. But, but the idea is that we can manage time. And if we manage time, then we can control how much space we have. So if we can manage our calendars or manage our schedules. Trains and planes will hypothetically arrive on time. We can control the outcomes. And in some ways, that's beautiful and good. The problem is that same logic has been applied to our own lives. That if we can just manage our time, then we will maximize our own output. And so the time of our life gets measured as a resource. Something that can be spent, something that can be invested, something that can be wasted. Something that there is a limited amount of. And again, some ways that is good. We now care about our schedule maybe more than we did before. We can be intentional about our time, but it also puts an impossible pressure on us. This is almost cliche to say, but we live in a world of more time-saving devices than ever, and yet people today work more than ever. And so the, the notion that we could control our time and maximize our space it actually proven to be exactly the opposite of that. That The more we control our time, the more we lose our space. The more that pressure actually makes our space even smaller. And that is because it is a myth that if we can control or manage our time, that we will maximize our space. One theologian suggests that this sense of trying to control our time in order to maximize our space is impatience. It would actually say that impatience is the root of most sin because it is an attempt to control our time in order to force something into existence. He says, God intends humans to have all good, but in God's time. And therefore, all disobedience, all sin consists essentially, I like this phrase, breaking out of time. Patience is the basic constituent of Christianity. It is the power to wait, not to force the issue by playing the hero or the titan, but to practice the virtue that lies beyond heroism, the meekness of the lamb which was led. See, our world reads the clock by measuring and counting to manage and control, to maximize 
to get efficient. But that is not how God reads a clock. That is not how God tells time. And if you're reading your Bible, then what will stick out to you immediately is that if our world has a sense of urgency around time, then God has, seems to have no notion of what time is just at all. Just think of some of the most famous stories of the Bible. Sarah waits 25 years after being promised to have a child to have a child. We don't wait 25 years for anything. I don't wait 25 seconds for a frozen burrito to be done. You think I'm going to wait 25 years for a kid? Uh-uh. In vitro. What's up, God? Israel waits in Egypt hundreds of years. And then as soon as they get out of Egypt, you know what they have to do? Wait in the wilderness for an additional 40 years. There is, then then they, they have their life, but then they go into exile and they wait an additional 70 years before they come back home. Israel spends most of its existence waiting. And then while they're coming back from exile, they're hearing these promises that God might do something. Do you know how long they have to wait between the last promise and Jesus? 400 years. Then Jesus shows up on the scene, and he spends most of his life waiting. He starts his ministry at 30. It lasts three years. Oh, and you know how he begins his ministry? 40 days in the wilderness, waiting. When Jesus is resurrected, which is its own waiting period, he then tells his disciples to wait for the Spirit. And then the last thing he tells his disciples, and the last thing we know about the church is that we are waiting for the consummation of Christ's kingdom. Right? If you're looking for a through line of Scripture, the primary narrative is actually probably people waiting. And as I read Scripture, that gives me so much anxiety. I just have to be honest with you. I read the Bible, and God gives me a ton of anxiety because I want to import the urgency of our moment onto God and His work. And so I want to import my sense of importance and my sense of control and my sense of speed and my sense of needing to move faster and quicker. I want to import that onto God and assume that he operates the same way. And so then when I read his story and I just see everybody waiting until they're dead, I get anxiety. But that's because God does not see time the same way that I do. I see it as a limited resource but God sees it as a gift that he's given. I see it as a limited resource that I have a limited amount of, and I have to spend it and use it and multiply it and invest it and manage it. Otherwise, I am wasting it. And so then waiting is always wasting. But God does not see time as a limited resource. He sees it as a gift that he has given. If we look back at that second Peter passage, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. His slowness and his space is a gift to his people that they might experience him and know him. The writer Tish Warren, whose book we have out by the Welcome Booth, says it really beautifully. She says, the reality is that time is not a resource. It is a stream that we are swept into. Time is a gift from God, a means of worship. 
So on one hand, you have it is a resource that is limited. On the other, it is a gift that God has given. Those are two fundamentally different ways of picturing time. And so I was trying to think, how do, you, how do I illustrate this in things that feel more practical? And so I thought of two moments. One moment is a place I hate. Another moment is a place that I really love. So if we conceptualize time as a resource, to me it feels like we conceptualize our lives as an airport. If you know me, I said this earlier, I hate airports. I just, I literally hate airports. I think they are dehumanizing. They force you in a line. They make you take your shoes off. There's no reason for it. TSA fails 95% of FBI security checks. Why are we doing it? So that you know your cattle. That's the purpose. (laughs) That's the thing. It exists only to give you the feeling of security. So I hate that. The other thing I hate about airports is I always get pulled out of line consistently, which is probably because I'm like snarling at the TSA agent because I'm so mad about the previous point. But I always get pulled out. My bag always gets searched. I've been like full on pat down in dark rooms. It's a very uncomfortable experience. But the third thing, the thing I think I hate most about airports is the waiting. It's the waiting in between this moment and getting to a new destination. Waiting, and at the same time, waiting and pretending like I'm in control. Like, if you're at the airport, there's all these numbers that are flashing around. Like, anybody has any idea when a plane's going to land. It's, it's this, this, we believe that we're in control of what's happening. And to me, that actually produces more anxiety. So I get there two hours early. I'm, like, sitting at a restaurant right across from my gate, still worried that I'm going to be late. Because it is all about moving somewhere else. It's about leaving somewhere else and trying as hard as I can to grip control of the moment. So that is one notion of time. That's actually, I think, how most of us live our lives, as though we are waiting for something else to happen, so we're never like truly living in the moment as as though it is a gift of God for worship. We're always waiting for something else as though there's some new urgency driving us somewhere else. So we live anxious. We live rushed. We live with a sense of urgency that we are trying to control, which only increases our sense of anxiety. So that's one picture of life. The other picture of life, though, is like the night before a wedding. Wedding Eve. I don't know if that's actually a phrase, but wedding Eve. Tori and I, when we got married, we had been engaged for a year and a month. pretty long time. We had done a lot of work in that period. A lot to do to put on a wedding. If you're married to a perfectionist, there's a lot to do to put on a wedding. I shouldn't act like I did a lot. There was a lot for her to do to put on the wedding. So we had, we had a whole year and a half, and we had a lot of work. And so most of the work, by the time that we get to the night before our wedding, most of the work is done. And whatever work isn't done, you kind of know it's beyond your control. Like, some things are just going to have to be let go of. And so you have this sense, like, there's things to do. You have this feeling of longing. But there was something different about it in my experience, that it wasn't anxious urgency, because there was nothing I could do to rush the moment. But I also knew the moment was soon. And there's not much you can do. There's not much you can control. And so you don't try to busy yourself doing all the tasks You have family in town. You're trying to be present to them. You have friends that are trying to be present to you. And so really, the the larger work of the night before the wedding is to be present 
and then to practice. And so you get with your people and you go to the rehearsal, and it's not the wedding, but it is special. Your line gets in order, her line gets in order, you walk through the ceremony, you bumble it twice, you do it a third time, like sort of okay, and you're like, yeah, let's go eat. <laughs> and it's not the wedding, but it is significant. And then you leave that place and you go to a dinner, and it's not the wedding celebration. But it is a dinner where you celebrate what has happened. And it is significant. And it is special. And there is something that feels like it's happening under the surface of that moment. Though it's not the next moment, it's not the wedding, it is still significant. And then at our wedding, at our wedding night, we, we left. Tori went to go be with her bridesmaids and her brother, and I went to go be with my groomsmen and my groomswoman, and we were just present. And they spoke words of kindness to me. And so instead of the moment being a moment of urgency, or of anxiety, the moment became one of presence and space. So I think those two moments are really decent pictures of what our life is like depending on how we view time, how we read a clock. We can read it like an airport, where it's rushed and anxious, or we can read it like it is the evening before a wedding. But it's how God says his world is. That we are waiting on the consummation of God's work, the wedding feast of the Lamb. There is work to be done. There is things to be participated in. But Jesus has already done the heavy lifting. And so now we have been given a gift of time to experience God with him. To turn to him, to know him, to worship him. That does not mean the time is always easy, or that it always feels like the celebration before a wedding. But it does say, do we trust what God says about his world? That it is the evening before a wedding. See, the big difference to me about these two experiences is that there is space for us as people in the night before a wedding. Airports, to me, they feel claustrophobic. Like I'm trapped and I'm stuck, probably because I'm in a small room being pat down. <laughs> I am literally stuck. But they feel that way to me. You're so rushed and there's so much things to do and you're running towards your gate and you're not even sure why you're running because you're like, I'm here two hours early, but you're still moving quickly. It's a, it's a very claustrophobic experience to me. I should probably see a therapist. But what I love about that illustration is theologian Letty Russell says that sin does the same thing to us. It makes us feel trapped. It closes the space around us. She says this. She says, going back to the root meaning of salvation as Yeshua, which is to be broad and spacious. Sin is understood as a denial of this room or space in which to live. So we said above that sin is impatience or control. And if you put those two pieces together, our attempts at controlling, at rushing, at managing our time, it actually restricts our space. And there's so much irony, I think, to that idea because most of the time, our impatience or our attempts at control, what you would call sin, like most of the time, I feel like that's actually an attempt to like give us more space to breathe. 
But I feel like that's what I'm doing. When I sin, most of the time what I'm trying to do is create space for myself. Space to be seen, space to be heard, space to be known, space to just like breathe. Even if something as simple as when I lie, oftentimes I'm lying because I'm trying to create space for myself, some options on the table. But the truth is, when I lie, I actually reduce space for myself. I hide myself behind a myth. I separate myself from other people. And more often, it's not as simple as just telling a lie. But my sin is me feeling trapped and restricted and lashing out at people. Getting angry or bitter or shamed. Lashing out and trying to create more space for myself. When actually all it does is reduce the space that I have. I feel like this is something you know if you've ever walked through a process of naming unhealthy, unhealthy coping behavior. Like you know that when we engage in the behaviors of unhealthy, it may feel like it's creating space for us, but it actually reduces the space. So that's food or sex or alcohol or even something like I use, which is humor to protect myself. Those things do not create space for God, myself, or others in my life. It reduces it. And here's what I mean. The more that we attempt to control, the less we create room for God to be God in our lives. Instead of trusting God, we trust ourselves. Instead of putting weight on him, we put weight on ourselves. And so we have to carry the pressure of that. We have to carry the weight of that. And our world gets smaller and more reduced. And so we don't let him give us the gift of space. And oftentimes that means we don't let him give us room to experience forgiveness, room to experience grace. We shrink what we're supposed to, we shrink the world around us, put like expectations that God is not putting on us or pressures that God is not putting on us. The more I try to control, the less room I make for myself because I am not built to carry that kind of pressure. Galatians 5, the passage that we're in for the fruit of the Spirit, it begins by saying that Christ has set us free to be free. And so we're supposed to live this life that's free in the gospel. And when I put the pressure on myself to control my world and my space, I am not free at all because it is a pressure I cannot carry. So I don't experience the room that God is trying to give me. I don't experience the room of grace. I don't experience the roominess of God's forgiveness. I don't experience the roominess of of being called into a community and told that that's my family. Because I'm always trying to hide from that. I'm always trying to control that. I'm always trying to manage that. So we reduce the room. And when I try to control, I make less room for others. Because I place expectations on loved ones and friends or like boundaries on expectations on my friends and my loved ones that they were not meant to live with them. I export my sense of urgency onto them. I expect them to have the same kind of anxiety that I do, the same kind of needs that I do, and I push them and I force them, or I expect my spouse to live into something that she was never built to live into, or my friends to live into something that they were never meant to live into, and I reduce the space that I'm called to give them. So I don't give them room to experience grace. So when they fail, instead of meeting grace, they meet high expectations. 
I don't give them the room of forgiveness, the room of belonging in a community. When we control and we are impatient, we reduce space for God, for self, and for others. Patience is the counter to that because it's the gift of space. It is first and foremost the work of receiving the gift that God is giving to his people, the space of forgiveness, the space to repent, to turn from old ways and to know who God is and to live in relationship to God. That's space. The first work is to turn from false control and to trust God and to live in the space that we are loved, that we are adopted, that we are with him, that he is for us, that the gospel is true. That is space. And here's where the physics of patience comes in because as God's patience moves us, it moves us in turn to be a patient people. And so as we experience God's patience and we also become patient and make more room for God, self, and others in our lives. So we create room in our, God, in our lives for God to be who God is. For him to be big. For him to be loving. For him to be powerful. For him to be calling us into a new way of life. We create more room in ourselves to hear that, to respond to that, and to live with God. We create more space for others to experience the same reality that we have. I feel like this is what Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians 2. I love this passage because Paul doesn't use the language of patience, but he uses the language of space to say, what does it look like to live in a relationship with someone and give them space? And he says this. He says, now if anyone has caused you pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive, comfort. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. He may be shrunk, restricted by, by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. The space of patience is the reaffirmation of love for someone. The space of patience is the reaffirmation of love for someone. It is the willingness to be with a person in the hard work of them receiving and living into grace. It is the, the willingness to be with someone as they're turning, as they're repenting, as they're learning what it looks like to live in light of who God is and what he's calling them into. It is the willingness to be with them and to reaffirm your love for them. So patience creates space. Space to know who God is, who the self is. To truly love the other as God calls us to. So how do we become a more patient people? How do we become a more patient people? We practice rest. We practice rest. We receive God's gift of time 
and space. And in the midst of all the busyness, all the claustrophobia, we risk and trust him. See, rest is a direct challenge to the impatience and control of our world. Because it is a literal, like, us risking the clock. Instead of racing it, we just stop. And we choose to trust, even though it doesn't feel like trusting, even though we don't have the emotions of trusting, we decide to stop, despite what the urgency of our moment says, and to say that we trust God, and in this moment, we're going to try to create space. This is so difficult for us. And personally, like I am just genuinely so bad at this. Last year, I got to go on sabbatical. I thought I understood how to rest before I went on sabbatical. I got there. I was like, oh, this is hard. I don't have any idea how to rest. Thought I figured it out. Got back, and I was like, I'm just going to kill it for the rest of my life. <laughs> and it was like two weeks in, I was like, oh, this is, this is a new level of anxiety that I've never known before. This is actually going to be harder than I ever thought. Even yesterday, I was working on this message. I was literally writing this line. And it was like 3 o'clock on a Saturday, supposed to be my day off. I wanted to be my day off. And I was working on this. And I was like wrestling. I was like, oh, that's not okay. Like, this is a small example of where this is a bad, this is, something has gone bad. This is not okay for me to be continuing to do this. I was not creating space for myself, for God, for my wife, for the others that are around me. Instead, I doubled down on my control, thinking that it would manage my anxiety. If I could just finish the thing, if I could just write the sermon, and it would manage my anxiety. Did it? I don't think so. But that is why rest is risk. Because what would have happened if I had actually stopped? Well, I would just be riffing right now. <laughs> it's a genuine risk. Ancient Israel was called to rest despite their borders being open. Like, don't go to war. Don't go to the market. Don't cut your food down. Like, how do you feed and protect your family and run your civilization? And God is like, stop. It is always a risk to rest. And that is why we need it. Because I don't know what else better reveals the sin of impatience and control in us than actually risking in rest. And in that risk, we create space to experience who God is, to experience the truth that he says, to experience the space that he's trying to give us. And in that, we get to experience him anew. So to become a patient people, we need to become a people who risk and rest. And what would happen, Missio, if that was true? What would happen if we became a more patient people? Well, right before the fruit of the Spirit moment, Paul says, which we already referenced, that for freedom, Christ has set us free. Then he leads into the fruit. And so for Paul, fruit are the ways that we practice freedom, that we hold to freedom, that we live freedom. That's the way of the Spirit is the way of freedom in Christ. And so that is true of patience. 
that if we begin to receive and practice the gift of space and time from God, I think that we would begin to genuinely experience the freedom of Jesus. That that's the invitation that we're being called into today. To genuinely experience the freedom of Jesus. And as we experience it, then we get to witness to it to the world around us. And invite them to into the freedom of Jesus. So Missio, let's do that today. Let's do that right here and right now. As we come to the table, what we are doing is we are receiving God's gift of patience to us. So as you come to the table, Missio, would you receive it? Would you receive God's gift? Don't rush it. Instead, hear the gospel. Hear Jesus' truth to our anxiety or our attempts to control, to our impatience, to our claustrophobia. Hear the truth of God and receive his gift, time and space. And as you receive it and as you hear it, let the physics of God's patience move you into patience towards God, yourself, and others. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for being patient. For at cost to yourself, creating space. For it cost yourself moving slowly for your people. So that we might know you, that we might experience you, and that we might turn from our impatience and our control towards you. So God, today in this moment, like as we have actually created some space, would we respond to you? Would we respond to your gifts? And here and now experience you, experience the space of you. So we might leave here, the patient people. In your name, amen.